I am the master, and you will obey me. Listen to Dan Hadley on Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, or face the consequences. It's time for Type 40. <laughs> Doctor Who content here from us at the Spacebook and the Fandom Podcast Network to you wherever you are and whenever you are. With me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, and my friends and companions. Yeah, get yourself a drink, sit down, and we'll, uh, we'll churn up some memories, won't we, about what was on screen and what wasn't. Because that's the thing with Doctor Who, isn't it? We watch these episodes over and over and over again until sometimes we know every line. I, I know some episodes of Doctor Who better than I know Star Wars. And I know Star Wars really, really well. And I suspect I'm, I'm not alone. In fact, I'd, I'd lay serious money on the fact that uh, Ian David Diaz, he knows it fairly well too. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> you know what I mean, don't you, Ian? There's movies that you know line by line by line on TV shows. There is. Yeah, there is. Close Encounters is one of them. I know line by line. Doctor Who is, has a special place in my heart like everybody else in England. Well, the fans, I guess. And this this episode obviously brought it back from the dead, which we appreciate. We yeah. venerate Russell T. Davis forever, yeah. based yeah. on the bloody great job he did for us back in 2004 when this thing was being shot. If you're joining us for the very first time, you're wondering who we are and, more crucially, what it's all about. We are Type 40, Doctor Who content. It's an eclectic show for everybody, whatever decade. You know, whether it was the 21st century even, or the 20th century, that you started watching, tagging along really with the adventures of the Doctor. Maybe you found it in the 90s when there was just books. We talk about it all on this show because all views are encouraged. And we have to, we try to have a few laughs along the way as well, don't we? Always. I mean, I always say that we may be serious about Doctor Who, but we're not always serious about how we celebrate it how we talk about it right but um you know when when you've got a couple of jokers like us you know some of the others who are on the bench on the squad with us at type 40 we often need other people more respectable people more sensible yeah more respectable than me that way (laughs) to to bring us into line don't we yes from the department (laughs) from the department of wendology it's it's wendy herself stand by your beds everyone hello (laughs) hello wendy it's lovely to be to be here and lovely to see you both. 
I think I've got a, a job here now. You've given me a job. I've got to make this place respectable. <laughs> it looks like, it looks like it. yes, we're going to have a casual chat through a chunk of uh, classic. I'm going to use the word classic when I talk about this. Classic Doctor Who. Iconic Doctor Who. And Doctor Who, that kind of changed everything back in 2005. But yeah, the idea is that uh, we're going to talk about this episode, this episode in particular, share some memories, have a bit of a general chin wag, and uh, you know, maybe one of us will fire a few shots through it, and <laughs> we'll see where that goes. But hold up, I can't forget to remind you to do some real-time travelling of your own, with just a tap or two, that's all, on the device of your choice. Well, it's, it's really easy. If you know where to look, of course, you'll find each and every edition of Type 40 and Type 40 Live there to stream or download on our dedicated home feed, type40.podbean.com. As well, over 100 great conversations, reviews, previews, interviews, geek outs, and deep dives with all our regulars and some pretty awesome guests. We know there's something for every fan at type40.podbean.com. Com. There'll be more about all that a little later on, as well as a couple of minutes for us to make contact with a real matrix of all geeky knowledge over at the Fandom Podcast Network for a word about all the other cult conversations going on across all the other shows over there. That's everything sorted. Now we're best placed for that trip back to the mid-noughties. An incredibly exciting evening towards the end of March. 2005 waiting for a continuity announcement and to meet rose tyler for the very first time now we're going to get to do it all over again when we look back to 2004 into 2005 billy piper was cast as rose tyler in doctor who back in in 2004 i think it was around the april and I don't know, Wendy, where you were in the world. You were still in America at that point, weren't you? I was indeed, yeah. yeah. So you probably wouldn't have even heard of her, even I, if you were in the country I, at that point. Yes, that's correct. Um, I hadn't heard of, of either of them, actually, and I definitely hadn't heard of Billy. Her musical background before she she was even cast and, and some of the sort of concerns that were raised in the very beginning, many people thought, oh my goodness, you know, what are they doing? But what a wonderful decision it was. I'd say Billy Piper, at the time she was around 22, uh, she'd been very high profile in the late 90s. She was more famous than Christopher Eccleston, wasn't she? Yeah, at the time, and also she was in the news because, I don't know whether this happened before Doctor Who or after, I think it was before it, wasn't it, when she was with Chris Evans. Not not Chris Evans from Captain America, uh, the other British Chris Evans, <laughs> they they got married because he was a lot older than her and they got married and because he was very, very wealthy. I think he still is wealthy, actually. Back then, I'd say pre-Simon yeah. Cowell, Chris, uh, Chris yeah. Evans for many years was yeah. one of the most high-profile people on TV. Whichever deal he'd signed with whoever he was going to, whether it was one radio station or another, mm. it was for some big fat amount of money, wasn't it? And it was yeah. always big news. It was like that. Their honeymoon lasted for a year. <laughs> they just travelled around the world, you know, yeah. doing just drinking and getting drunk every night or some nonsense like that. I remember him saying he surprised her. He brought her a car, and she didn't know how to drive. <laughs> so it was like it was like, huh? You don't know how to drive? I was really surprised when they cast her actually, because all I knew of her that she was a pop. She was one of those pop stars that didn't quite make it. You know, I think she had two hits. Was it just two hits? She had more than that. But I, I oh, did she? 
I remember thinking at the time, like long before Doctor Who, that they got this timing sort of wrong with her. I think she mm. hit big in this country. She had one hit in America, which I can't remember which the name, what the name of the track was. And mm. then, and then Britney Spears happened. Everything that Billy <laughs> was trying to do, uh, Britney came along and did it bigger and yeah. badder with more attitude and sadly uh, with better songs, I think, Wendy. Well, perhaps too with a, with a lot of financial backing as well yes. i think mm. taking nothing away from her you know in her own talents but uh, i think she definitely did have quite a big uh publicity machine behind her as well so uh, yeah she was huge in the states and unfortunately for me at the time i i hadn't heard anything to do with billy so mm. my first introduction to her was was watching her with chris the one thing that is, apart from the fact they've both got blonde hair, is that they were both stage school kids. You know, they were both uh, not fast-tracked as such, but uh, mm. Billy Piper had been on TV. I think she'd been on kids' TV when she was around 10 or 11, you know, and she was one of those who would hold up signs in TV studios and, you know, she'd been in commercials and then and then a Wasn't it a commercial that record. made her famous, Dan? Wasn't it the smash hits? Maybe. I think it was no. the Smash Hits. She did a Smash Hits commercial where she was dancing around. She was and the then... cover girl for Smash Hits magazine. Yes, you're yeah, right. That's it. And yeah. that's yeah. now because when that track, that very first record, because we want to, her very first yeah. record went straight in at number one and yeah. sold an absolute ton. And at the time, you know, I, I didn't read that magazine. To me, she was just the, the, the latest new singer. And I couldn't understand how she'd become so popular so quickly mm. until you hear that story afterwards. And it's not that Chris Eccleston was a nobody, he wasn't. Yeah, he, he was had, well respected. He chosen his roles carefully, mm. as he continues to do. Mm -hmm. he, I think he, his first big role was in Let Him Have It back Let in 1989, yep. the Derek Bentley, the real life film. I think he'd done an Inspector Morse or something before that, but little parts here and there. He'd worked with Danny Boyle and people like that. He was, I mean, yeah. he was brilliant in Shallow Grave and yeah. a couple of other movies like Gone in 60 Seconds, like big Hollywood film. You could never really predict what he was going to do next. And could that be why his name never stuck with the British public? I think so, but also he he's notorious for being very difficult to work with, apparently, um, what I hear from other directors and stuff like that. So he, he doesn't suffer fools lightly. But um, he said that he did Doctor Who because of his kids, because he wanted to do something different. He wanted to do something where he was funny. I think I read that yeah. somewhere. Well, the quote is that he was sick of everybody thinking he was a um, miserable old git. Well, what it was, he'd worked with Mark Gatiss. He'd done an episode of The League of Gentlemen on BBC2, yes. the black comedy yeah. show. What he wanted, he didn't have children himself at the time, but he was very mm. keen to work for children, that he never really acted for children. And he wanted to step out of his comfort zone and challenge himself, which mm. I think is a good creative thing to do, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're both creative people too. What impresses me about Billy is that she came from from roots like that and faced a lot of concern, you know, when she was cast and people didn't quite know, you know, and she she had a huge role in a very, very incredibly important IP that was being resurrected. And what a gift, but also what a tremendous terror that must have felt Pressure. for her to think, my mm. goodness, you know, I have to go on and I have to perform. And next to an actor like Chris Eccleston as well. I, I think a lesser being would have just crumbled. She stood up to Chris and she balanced him perfectly. Their their on screen chemistry was just was just beyond perfect. I, I loved it. Beautifully cast. And I think when you I watched this again the other night, the episode we're gonna talk about, and I think I'd forgotten how well they gelled, how well they worked together. And now you've said that, Wendy. 
Yeah, I mean, he was a man, Chris Eccleston. He was a, a two-time BAFTA, sort of not, certainly nominee, if, if not winner. All those big movies, roles that people respect. There was a weight to the name and a weight to the performance. And there was mm-hmm. Billy, who had acted before, and she'd been great in the things I'd seen in a couple of things in the years running up to this. She was gradually changing people's perceptions of her. But of course, when you're, you're that famous for doing that one thing, particularly with the British public, I don't know how it is in the States. In Britain, I think we pigeonhole people hard and fast. And can they can, they can States, stay though. there for years? I think it's the same anywhere, yeah. yeah I agree, anywhere. yeah. Chris Eccleston worked with Russell T on The Second Coming. Is it the only thing he's worked with him? I can't remember, prior but I know to, that. Prior to Doctor Who, mm. it was, yeah, when he did the, the second coming for ITV. I mean, yeah. I mean, Russell yeah. T. Davis had, had come to Doctor Who. You know, we won't go into, into all that in mm. too much detail because it's probably been, everybody knows the story about how he was, he yeah. signaled interest years before, uh, but never really thought it would happen. And then when they offered it to him, he got really nervous and nearly turned it down and, and went through that whole sort of creative backwards and forwards, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? seems ridiculous now of course he was yeah. going to do it you know he'd had a massive hit with queer as folk other stuff that he'd done had been liked but hadn't hit particularly big i think the second shows like the second coming and bob mm. and rose people who saw them liked them and talked about them but they weren't really uh, seen by that many people he was a a superstar writer within the creative industry more so the average person would not have been able to have picked him out of a crowd or realize that they knew him from somewhere and i think this made a star of russell t davis as a writer and a personality in a way that we yes. hadn't seen up to now and and the way that did. i don't i don't think happens very often generally ian i think you know writers people like alan bennett everybody knows who they are but that's quite rare as well isn't it yeah because doctor who's a, it's a huge ip and also remember that you've got the huge fan base you know he reintroduced it you got more fans young children ended up liking it so it was a big it was a huge thing it was the start of little side shorts uh, connected to shows do you remember because they used to put little side shows in the making of and stuff like that yeah, what was yeah. the making of things called i can't remember the bbc just went all out in trying to promote doctor who unfortunately it didn't go all out with the budget but um even even with, <laughs> with the eccleston version but, um, you know, they went all out to try and make Doctor Who a presence in people's lives. Well, I was sort of talking it up as much as I could, but I, I talked it up very carefully, very modestly. I think bit by bit as I saw the production come together, yeah, I, I thought, okay, now I feel I can speak about this confidently. Mm. And, but even up to that point, though, Wendy, people were saying to me, well, it's all very well and good. They've got this writer and that writer and this great actor. What makes you think people will actually watch that? Stupid people that would say that. I mean, for God's sakes, look how many videos sold of classic Doctor Who. Do you know what I mean? BBC, yeah, if yeah. it's if you're talking about someone from the BBC that said that, they're dark. I mean, everybody knows BBC don't like Doctor Who. Put it that way. So. I think at that point, before it came on, though, that was still the general public's perception of it, that it was that cheap show that had fun. You were still burdened. You were, you were still saddled yeah. with that yeah. little bit of, of stigma, weren't you? If you brought it up, yeah. you know, in a workplace or, you, or it came up somewhere where you weren't, among people who who happen to like classic Doctor Who, you you might get a little bit of, you know, a little bit of stick, a little bit of smirking, you know, and this this helped to bring in even people who didn't previously find anything of interest in classic Doctor Who were suddenly talking about the show and mm. suddenly finding out why so many of us loved the show so much. I lay that at Russell's feet in such a loving way because he gave it 
he gave it soul. He, he knew how somehow magically to bring it back with that wonderful, powerful, soulful feeling. So you felt like you were part of something. I would say that he hasn't just got an ear for how real people speak. He has a an eye and a sensitivity too for the, for that which an audience can invest in. I would disagree with that, but that, I'll I'll come to that when we talk about the show, <laughs> the episode. Drinking. <laughs> Yeah, but um, I think the new generation, you see, the thing is, he was clever the way he constructed the first episode, because he constructed the first episode like it was something new, that classic who never existed. So the, when when he introduced, uh, was it 2005? There was no connection between that and what had gone in the past. So the new audience would come in, they'll understand it right away because they've been told what's happening. Like when Rose runs right. into the, you know, the TARDIS and says it's bigger on the outside and the doctor goes, yes, you've got questions, yes, 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 whatever. Um, what I'm saying is that when Rose is asking the questions, she's doing it for the audience. And so the audience is being educated about Doctor Who. The fans that like classic, they were excited because Doctor Who was coming back on the screen. I was excited. And mm -hmm. then the new ones, they didn't have to know about classic. Yeah. And that is their Doctor and that is their era. Because it looks indistinguishable from a yeah. box for a show, something that's yeah. just fresh out of the box. Yeah, that's right. It, it's very it clever what he did. Yeah, it was. Let's uh, cast our minds back to uh, March the 26th of uh, 2005. My God. It was a, a cultural landscape that was certainly very different. How it, it was um, Buffy. And, Buffy. Buffy. Well, Buffy, Buffy yes. had up a few years before, hadn't yeah. it? I think oh, it that, did. You're right. I think that the genre was waiting for the next big thing. Yeah. The, the mm. next thing to sweep everybody away. Certainly in, in the United Kingdom, Angel would have finished around 2004 into 2005. So the timing of it was absolutely perfect. And Russell but, but, had been watching, watching everything that was going on there very, very carefully. So let's have a little bit of a recap in case you haven't watched it for a while. This is Rose. Rose. T. Davis originally broadcast 26th of March 2005 on BBC One. It uh, committed the uh, the big crime of being 45 minutes in length rather than 25 minutes. <laughs> They've taken that inspiration, not just from Buffy, but from American TV, yeah. that model of 45-minute episodes. Mm -hmm. And the general premise is that when Rose Hyler meets a mysterious stranger called the Doctor, her life will never be the same again. Soon she realises that her mum, her boyfriend, and the whole of planet Earth are in danger. And the only hope for salvation lies inside a strange blue box. Mm. It was directed by a guy called Keith Bowick. And uh, he's, I think he's done more since than he had then. He's, his name pops up on things like Death in Paradise. I think as somebody, Wendy, who used to study the old credits of classic Doctor Who, you did wonder, are old names going to turn up? And But to see all the names attached to this, apart from Russell, I knew who Russell was, mm. everybody else was different. Unknown and untested, untried. Mm. I had no idea, not just how it was going to feel, even though I'd, I'd seen a lot of Russell's work, but mm. I didn't really know how it was going to look, even though we'd seen some trailers, Wendy. Yeah, I loved the trailer. When we started getting trailers in the States, I mean, we had the internet obviously then, but we, mm. I didn't have anybody else, you know, to really get You're excited with me, you know? <laughs> and I was just so excited and I was relieved that somebody was finally bringing it back, but also, you know, a little bit apprehensive because obviously we were all quite concerned. What are they gonna do with it? Once it came back on, it felt like it had always been there in a way. Um, it felt like it belonged, didn't it? It yes, didn't feel out of place 
in the yes. current 21st it felt century like it belonged landscape. to the BBC, definitely. <laughs> yeah. It did, it did. And I, mean, I mean, you know, if you look at it closely, it felt like it fell in line with what the BBC um, has been uh, tasked to do in, which is to, into, you know, into integrate um, sections of, of England into TV shows, different uh, accents, you know, they have to have this remit that they have to fill and they filled it yeah. in this episode, so, which is a good thing, I guess, yeah. I think if they had a remit that they had to fill and they had mm. even boxes to tick back then, mm. it was done so well and so well crafted. It was. Yeah, it was. That it, you didn't notice anything like that. All you got was this wonderfully entertaining program that started to sweep you away from the minute it came on. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but... <laughs> he's, a, he's a tough crowd, Wendy. He's a tough crowd. I know he is. I know this he is. is. This is the thing now. You know, we, we get used to hearing hearing words, buzzwords, and agendas, and all that kind of thing yeah. now. But yeah. the truth is that the BBC, as a public so uh, service broadcaster, mm -hmm. has always had a charter, which is always Yes, they been, did, yep. Has always mm -hmm. been reviewed and renewed in line mm -hmm. with, um, with the IBA, uh, yep. which is now called Ofcom and in line with the uh, government mandates. Mm. It's, it's always walked, I wouldn't say a fine line, but they've always had to observe that to justify the license fee in, mm. in some capacity, in some, general, in some general area when such things would come up for debate. Because even though it's like a real hot potato now because the world's changed so much, the license fee has often been challenged and looked at over the decades. Mm. Of course, in in previous years, there was nothing really alternative to uh, to kind of offer people. Yeah, I suppose it's true. But, you know, so now you've said it, Ian. I think I've forgotten mm. all about that. That yeah. push towards being more regionally inclusive, inclusive yes. of the UK. Do you remember they they uh, got rid of the old BBC Globe and introduced a big hot air balloon instead, which instead of just floating <laughs> yeah. all over the country? So yeah. I loved that. I thought that was the spirit of the BBC. Well, uh, I mean, you know, this, it's no mistake that Mickey's black. It's no mistake that, um, you know, we, we're talking about council flat here where Rose lives. You know, there's no mistake that it's working class people because that's their remit. The BBC's remit is to entertain all. So even though the BBC was run by upper class, middle class people and majority of the people that work in the TV industry is of that ilk, they still have to make shows that will talk right across the board to everything. And that's their remit. Same thing with Channel 4. When Channel 4 started up, they had a remit as well. And now yeah. they're kind of, a, you know, they're kind of a bit, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's there, but it's not, if you know what I mean. So as the years go on, it kind of gets a bit rubbery. You can <laughs> stretch the remit yeah. to, to whatever you kind of think it's like, you know, same thing with the BBC as well, you know. To so. the point where sometimes, I mean, obviously, you know, you can talk about where that line is between mm -hmm. between observing that sort of thing yeah. and when entertainment value is compromised. You know, we talk about that mm -hmm. quite a lot. Yes. And I think back then, people who were the big fans of the show, I mean, proper, you know, the died in the wall fans who'd been counting the days and, and were clinging on, you know, onto hope or, or maybe were were determined not to like it. Mm. I think gradually it seduced everybody. I knew some seriously cynical people, uh, you know, not people who were necessarily Doctor Who fans, but who thought that the, you know, that this premise was never going to fly again and that they were wasting their yeah, time. Yeah, so did I. Yeah. And I then, and then they saw, well, then they saw this scene. Check this out. Warn you. If you do, then I should warn you. 
Because if you do, then I should warn you. You're going to see all sorts of things. Ghosts from the past. Aliens from the future. The day the Earth died in a ball of flame. It won't be quiet, it won't be safe, and it won't be calm. But I'll tell you what it will be. I'll tell you what it will be. Trip of a lifetime. Do you want to come with me? You see, I was so excited when I saw that trailer. I mean, could you imagine my disappointment when I saw the first episode? Could you imagine? Well, I remember when that went out, my son, who was about four at the time, just looked at me and said, I want to go with him, Dad. Yes, I do. Well, we all did. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, we, look, at, I... look at the way it was shot. Look at the way it was lit. Look at the look at shot on 16 mil or 35 mil. Yeah. Where it was I think it was 16. Yeah. At a time, it looked fantastic. Let's Absolutely get into fantastic. it. Yeah, so this, these are the first moments. So the, epi- the episode begins with Rose Tyler, doesn't it? I think that's the that's the trick of it. We talked a little bit ago about the uh, the Doctor and the companion being fresh out of the box, and they, the stage was sort of clear, really, for them to rebuild this show and to rebuild mm. that dynamic. I hadn't seen this episode until the other day. I hadn't seen it for around four years. And what struck me, I think, was how much this episode isn't just called Rose, it's about Rose. And although I wouldn't say that the Doctor is a bit player, he is effectively the second lead of this episode. The story begins with her, mm-hmm. as is right, and ends with her as well. It's very easy, isn't it, Ian, to talk about the mm. way that things were shot and production values back then, because any example of vintage TV, I think, no, it's not quite vintage, something has to be 20 years old to be classed as vintage, isn't it? But older TV, once a decade or so has passed, you can see markers, can't you, that give it away as being a product of its time. And this episode of Doctor Who's no different, is it, Ian? No, it's no different. And as I said, um, that trailer got me so excited because after seeing the, the Paul McGann uh, movie that was shot on film and it looked fantastic. But this one, I was so... When, when, it's, yeah, when it started, I'm like, oh my God, they shot on Digibeater. Why? It's like coming down from like the movie version, which looked fantastic and they took their time lighting it, to this rushed as far as I was concerned, I know it wasn't rushed, but it just looked awful. Because in those well, days, it right, was a troubled production, Ian, as we now know. I know, I know, yeah. It doesn't come out for a long time no. afterwards. Ooh. Yeah. They had this thing where what they do is they shoot on DigiBeach, which was tape. And what they do is they strip it off a field. So when everybody moves, it, it looks like film, but it isn't. It's actually video. So if you look at straight lines in the shots, you'll see the lines jagging. That gives it away that they stripped off a field because when you make up a picture when it comes on video, you'd have two fields, upper field and a lower field. And when they strip it of one field, it, they move, it moves like film. It doesn't move like video. So that's what they did on this. And I was so disappointed. I was sitting there going, oh, God, why didn't they put money into this? So even though it's special to us, to all of us, it is still uh, a BBC show with a set amount in the budget afforded to it. It's still uh, an in-house production. It's still got uh, a producer and executive producers. It, you know, the budget is the budget. BBC HD, the HD channel didn't exist. Doctor no. Who itself was some four years away from being made in HD. It, it happened quite quickly. I think 2006, 2007, they were testing it out. Then mm-hmm. I think BBC Three went HD before BBC One. So this was largely the standard. I mean, I look at clips and screen caps from this episode. It reminds me of all the other dramas that were around at the time. The reason why you should shoot on film at that moment in time is to actually future-proof it. Because if anything's shot on okay. film, you could future-proof it to, to HD and it looks still looks the same as at the way. 
now they've created these AI programs that yeah, can they update have the picture and stuff. Yeah, yeah definitely yeah. upscale them for, for yeah. Blu-ray. When I was watching this episode, from the moment you hear that alarm clock beep, you hear yeah. Rose's alarm clock <laughs> beep, 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 beep. In a way, it's cheesy. That fall to the earth, we've seen it over and over again, and it gets me every time I think because it's good, it sweeps though. right into somebody's, somebody's bedroom. Just a girl going off to work. I'll yep. say this, you know, and I won't have many negative things to say about this. That first mm. scene where she goes from the shop floor down to the cellar at Hendrix where she works, that seems to go on forever now. The pacing yeah. of this episode, it's not as good as I remember it being. It's funny, isn't it? When you watch it again, you've already had the, the reveal. You know what's coming. So now you're noticing things that you didn't notice the first time around. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And I like um I like the beginning, I like the writing. Russell T, you can't fault Russell T in his writing, in his construction of an episode. Within two minutes, you know who Rose is. Everything that she does within that two minute montage in the beginning. She gets up, she goes to work, she meets her boyfriend at lunchtime. You know that she has a boyfriend, you know what kind of a girl she is. She's laughing, she's generally a happy person, you know, she doesn't like going to work and stuff like that. And when she's trying to get home as fast as she can, she she's given this thing to you know, I think it's the lottery thing that she has to go yeah. back downstairs and she doesn't want that to do that at all. So within the space of, I think, two minutes, less than two minutes, you know who she is. What fantastic yeah. writing. So we're never yeah. in any doubt about, about who she is, what makes her tick, the yeah. people in her life, what is her normal and whether she's contented or not, I think gradually changes over the time that we know her but in this episode mm. it's it seems like she's a wonderful character from the start. I think I'd forgotten how much I actually like Rose and can relate to Rose, Wendy. And I think that's the key word, Dan, is relatability, because that's the first thing that I felt watching her. And like Ian was just saying, the way that this was done, it's all laid out for you. And you instantly, and certainly I did, relate to her as a person. She's in a bit of a dead-end job. She's young enough to, to have the whole world at her feet, but she's not in the right place to be able to make anything else happen for herself than just going back and forth to work every day, coming home, seeing her boyfriend, eating chips. It shows how all of a sudden this the, the universe has opened up to her. It drew you in and from my point of view, I, I was I was along for the ride, that was it. Mm. I think we get mm. that she's loyal and responsible with the lottery money and <laughs> yeah. yes yeah she doesn't just she doesn't just leave oh, work yeah. early you know I, I think we find out little bits about her yeah. character a dripped out i mean R russell t davies was and is such a attuned warm such a witty writer as well some of the gags are a little on the nose maybe but only in a cheesy kind of dad joke kind of way in other words they're the kind mm. of jokes that people actually do make because we're not all Perry award-winning comedy writers are we these are the jokes that people make to one another in the average family home yes. like it or not yeah he, he got the characters right i mean i mean the very little that we knew of her mother we know we knew exactly who the mother was and, and what kind of <laughs> attitude she had we knew who mickey was so uh, to that extent, Russell T crafted something that was really good with the characters. It's just the logic that falls flat on, on its face when it comes to this episode. But, you know, we'll come to that. Jackie and Mickey both rely on Rose for different yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's perfectly capable of giving, but does she have to? When she or does she want to? I mean, and even though that long scene, yeah. Sorry. What was I saying about dad jokes, everybody? Even though I thought that scene was quite long, I think when it does hit pay dirt and she's come face to face with the doctor, yeah. and we get that first line from Christopher, because that's the first time we lay our eyes on the doctor in the mm. fictional universe for nine of our Earth years. It was at, at that point of that line run. We're, we're staring him right in the face, and so is Rose, and he takes her hand 
she grabs it back and and together they run i think that's the spirit of this entire production from mm -hmm. this moment until russell t davis signs off on the show Mm -hmm. He Absolutely. got it right though, didn't he? He got it right. Mysterious man in a, in a, in a blue box, Earthling yep. meets meets that person, and she's intrigued. And that's yep. basically what Doctor Who is all about. Doctor Who comes and saves the day, and he goes away. Some people are very very hard on this episode of Doctor Who, even after all. This I'm time, not hard. Even... No, I'm not, I'm not necessarily <laughs> talking about you. I'm, I'm talking about I'm, you know you're looking at it from a filmmaker's point of view. No, so no, 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 no. I'm looking at it as a fan. As well as when, you know, but when you talk about DigiBeat or you know, most of us don't. Know no, I just thought I'd educate you. But yeah, just thought I'd no, and, it, and it's and it's appreciated, mate. You know it. Uh. Is. But, but what, what I'm saying is that yeah. it, it wasn't just people who had that kind of knowledge who know why it may look a little bit fuzzy. It was accused of looking like a CB, uh, a children's BBC yes. show by a yes. few people, and mm -hmm. which I thought was unnecessary and and harsh. Even if it is kind of right, <laughs> it's true. It's true. That's what it looks it made like. By the, you know? Made by the BBC, and I see that now. Yeah. Obviously, as, as time passes, you see that even more. It, it's got that sort of Tracy Beaker sort of fudge. Yeah, <laughs> Tracy Beaker. I remember. It, it, it has, <laughs> as regards production values, but I think, That's and but, and people also criticised it as well because of the plot, particularly because I was active on uh, Doctor Who message boards at that time. The plot's very thin, isn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> I watched this again again the other day and I've probably seen it a couple of dozen times, if not 50 times. I'd say it is a simple plot, but that doesn't mean it's not a sophisticated piece of TV. I agree. It doesn't I agree. need a complicated mm. plot. It's introduction. This, this episode has, yes. has some serious heavy lifting to do. All that stuff that mm. you were saying, Ian, about with the British public and with the characterisation. So why would you, in 45 minutes, try and serve this sort of dense multi-stranded plot when you can you can lead people there can't you i think people are mm. unpatient unpa for it to hit all bases all at once which was un unfair i think what you said dan as well about it, it it didn't necessarily need to be perfect it didn't need to be too heavy or too dense because the object of this particular story was just to try to hit the ground running and try to yep. bring in as many people as possible. Saying that, I completely understand and agree that, you know, now that we're all these years later, we go back and we can look at some of these episodes and say, yeah, okay, this might have let it down a little bit, or, you know, perhaps they should have done things slightly differently. But it doesn't change the feeling I get when I watch the episode. And that's, I think, a big part of a good story. It helps that shit starts blowing up. <laughs> and there's no to look oh, yeah. at within that first five minutes to grab people to grab people's attention. That's that's no slight because it's it was meant to be sensational. It was billed as the trip of a lifetime. You yeah. cannot gradually sort of stag your way around uh, a few corridors in Television Center at a snail's pace when you've built something as the trip of a lifetime. Mm. That's the kind of statement I don't like want to use sound bites. Well, the episode was, was there to introduce the Doctor to a new generation of fans. It did its job, and it did its job well. But the problem is the lack of money, just a lack of logic in, in some scenes that, that just kind of lets it down, in my opinion. So even opinion. though you accept that Russell T. Davis is a great writer, you, yeah. you think it could have done with another pass on the actual script? Yeah, I, I or, think, or think it was a compromise? If you look at it from the writer's point of view, he writes something, but then the production has to make what he writes a reality. Like, for instance, okay... Why was the the makeup on Mickey when he when they made the plastic version of him? Why was it so prevalent? She didn't that notice did he was me. plastic. Things it's like that. Me too, Wendy, yeah. Every time I watch it, it's things like that. That, that does get to me when I watch it. I think, um, yeah. Well, how could okay. she not know? 
Was that deliberate though? That Mickey looked like no. that because he he'd just been made. Whereas we we see no. Well, why would it be deliberate? Later. Because they were trying to ensure that the audience was absolutely certain that he was no. Because it would work. He was a no. Copy. Yeah, I agree because with it would work better if you didn't know he was a copy. Then he started stuttering. Yes. And then, and then, bang! Yes. You're back in there. You're like, he's not real. Instead yes. of actually, when you see him in the car, it's completely different makeup. He's, he's a lot different makeup to when he's in the restaurant. To me, it's a production fault. That isn't Russell T's mm. fault. What about if it was deliberate? You can't be that stupid, right? To to, to know well, that Rose would not notice that. Hopefully, Come on. it wasn't. Hopefully, it wasn't deliberate in that regard. Wasn't. Because, but at the same time, you do wonder sometimes, and you think, do they think people are that dumb? People but are I not think... stupid. I think whilst it, it let the episode down a little bit, it wasn't a deal breaker for me. And I, I just, I think we're used to just using our imagination with who. They didn't really have the excuse, but I think the time when I watched it, I thought, oh, she doesn't notice. But then I, I was gone and it, you know, glossed over it then. But obviously watching mm -hmm. it back and every time you get to that scene, you do have this little bit of like internal, oops. Another thing that really, really bothered me when I was watching it, I can do a better Photoshop job than what they did on those pictures. I'm like, for God's sake, <laughs> who was working on this? You know, even look, then, with the technology we had then. I, yeah. I, I, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Talk about the cast as well. It's a smaller cast than you than you yeah, think, is, really, yeah. because it's probably bigger than classic Doctor Who, but we've you, you mentioned we've got Noel Clark as, as Mickey Smith. It's the first time we see him. He'd been in a few shows, things like OV Design Pet. People knew his face. He's not in it as much as you think. But there's other great people in it too, like Mark Benson plays Clive. I yeah. think he's wonderful in He's a marvellous actor. He's got five, ten minutes on screen, a memorable character. Why no, didn't he run when he saw them in the mall? Why didn't he run? He's the first person that should have went, oh my God, grabbed his family and just ducked well, and run away, you know? But he, they I, just I, sort of froze. I think <laughs> because he, even he couldn't quite believe it, that he was right. I think people had been taking the piss out of Clive for so long, yes. including his own wife, albeit lovingly, that when mm -hmm. it's all of him and it's all true i think he's taking in every tiny detail and it's a split second even though it seems mm. longer on screen between mm -hmm. when the auton's arm levels up and he realizes oh my god that means if all of that is right and i was right all along his mind goes from a to b to yes, c yes it does yeah yes before then you the, the weapon is cocked aimed square at him and he's you're, you're gone he's done he's also, out <laughs> yeah that's also, an excellent also point, when he was having those pictures and he was showing rose why wasn't it the, the first Doctor, you know, and he made the connection between all these people are it's connected to this? because of what you said, mate. I think it's exactly that. because they wanted to maintain that box fresh series. No, oh, that's true. He, he that's true. That things, could be true, yeah. He does say things. He does mention mm. it. He says, I think it's an inheritance passed down from father to son. Then he and, says he's immortal. Uh, <laughs> he's immortal. He flips, yeah, yeah, but he flips through a load of pictures, doesn't he, doesn't he before he saying, does, oh, yeah. This this one's yours. He says something like that, and he produces mm. the picture of uh, of the Eccleston. Well, several pictures of the Eccleston Doctor. Even though he's telling us some quite outlandish things, so mm. maybe showing her a picture of oh, you know, see this guy, this multicolored coat, same mm -hmm. fella. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. You know, I think he wants to ease her into it gently. You, I think you're right. I never thought of it that way. But if it was me in charge, I would have said, yeah, let's have the multiple doctors and, and create a reason why he connects them all. But obviously, Russell T wanted to have a fresh start because if he introduced those characters, then obviously the new fans wouldn't know who they are. They mm. wouldn't be able to make that connection. So maybe it was right. He just had Eccleston going for all the way through through history, I guess. Because obviously, Mark Benton, he's mm. you know, he's really quite famous now. He's had several shows himself. He's in Shakespeare and Hathaway, that, that lovely mm. little afternoon detective show. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, really nice guy. I could watch him in anything. And in this, he's great. But you can see that line, it's chilling when he leads Rose to that place. She's starting to believe in and make those connections. And he says, I, th I think he's an alien from another world. I think yeah. he's immortal. And you can see him look a square in the eye. Cards yeah. on the table. You ask me what I believe. You've asked me what the culmination of all my research is. This is it. Mm. Take it or leave it. And then the next thing we see, she's out of his house and she's gone. But yeah. you can see in Mark Benton's eyes, he loved delivering that line. <laughs> yes, it was. It was delivered with such pathos. I really like his character. I wish he came back actually so throughout the run yeah. of, of Eccleston. Just just in you know, just in small little bits and stuff. It could have been a, a nice run in gag with him. This is generally how I thought when I saw the episode the first time on the BBC. I didn't think uh Chris Eccleston's performance worked because he was trying to be funny. They must have shot this one first, right? Am I right, Dan? Did they shoot no. this one first? No, they so, shot Aliens of London and right, uh, okay. World War III first. And so when did this one come in line? Because he still hasn't got the Doctor here. I think it mm. was still in that first production block. I think it was right. not long mm. after. Because when he's walking down the road with Rose and where they're holding the hand and he's like, I'm the Doctor and blah, blah, blah. I, I just wasn't convinced at all. And, and everybody will hate me for this. When he holds a hand, he's like, I can feel the earth spinning. And I, can, I know the sun is this, that. I wasn't convinced. As I'm sure you're aware, you must have heard this over and mm. over again. That yeah. is a fan favourite scene. That yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's one of I'm my favourites. Not my favourite. Yeah. <laughs> gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. First time I ever saw that clip, a week and a couple of days before the episode was actually on, on uh, the Jonathan Ross show, Christopher Eccleston was a guest. We'd seen so little, and that was the clip we got yeah. shown as a, whatever you want to call it, as a taster. I think that played a massive part in convincing me that Doctor Who was back after all, that it mm. was safe to look. I just think he's so much... The, my reading of it couldn't <sighs> be more different. He can't be any more, <laughs> any more like the Doctor. I think it's pitch perfect. I love his costume. I think it suits who he is um, as, mm -hmm. as Chris Eccleston. I mm -hmm. did not like his performance in this episode at all. There, was, there were certain bits in it that I thought was great, and there were certain bits where I thought he completely missed the ball. Especially in this scene where he's walking with Rose and, you know, um, and they he's start joking. And it's like... over, the, over these uh, comedy strokes that he has to play in it. Personally, they worked for me. I, I thought they were quite funny. But I can understand they might not be to everybody's taste. I think well, he's fighting with the him. hand and all that rubbish. I'm like, you know, oh, for God's sakes. You know, and then I, he, think they, you know, oh. I think they taxed him as an actor, Ian. I they did, was, yeah. That was what he wanted by taking this part. I guess. It does stand out. You're aware that he's not, not struggling as such, but you're aware that he's out of his comfort zone. I think that if Chris was feeling or was appearing to be awkward with the comedic scenes, I think it worked anyway for me because he isn't human, so he is going to be a little bit awkward. He is going to yeah. be a little bit... No, it was uh, a He's going to lose patience with certain situations because, you know, we see them umpteen thousand times before. Yeah. Well, that's how you so, interpret it. You could stuff. say that when it comes to the bedroom scene where mm. we meet Jackie Tyler, played by the wonderful Camille Cameron. Yeah, she's oh, great. Her in she her bedroom, great, yeah. in her dressing gown. Yeah. Fortunately, because she is so good that yes. anything mm. that Chris can't quite reach or that may feel mm. clunky is more than made up for by her beautiful comic time. She's great. I, I, I really liked her from the get-go when I saw this episode. I like the bit where she's like, you should call the newspapers and make some money out of this and stuff like that. All that yeah, stuff she's saying. That. Yeah, yeah, All the she way does. through the episode. I yeah. noticed lots of things about this episode yeah. this time, guys, that I, 
I hadn't before. And that was one of them. Continually, yeah. she's trying to angle. For, she's going to get that money. Whether Rose wants yeah, it yeah, or, not, or not, is yeah. by the by. Yeah. Jackie is going to get that The money. compensation, yeah. <laughs> well, that tells you a lot about her character. And as I said, yeah. that's, the, that's the genius of Russell T. Now, the way they interpreted uh, the production interpreted it was 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 in my opinion completely flawed. Mm. Everybody knows if you're gonna if you're gonna have a, a living room set, especially for TV, the living room set's got to be bigger. It's got to be it's got to be more exaggerated. You can't just have the same size. If you go into a council flat and shoot some of the council flat, you'll feel everything is small. That's why when you watch American TV shows, the mm. living rooms are always so big because you you get that thing about space. And with this, yeah. it just felt like I know it was a set, but why didn't they build the set bigger? That's just me. Yeah, you know, I, I said it was just well, me watching did, all this they stuff. They did no. rebuild that set and expand it for uh, the Christmas, the Christmas one. Yeah, and I know. They, again, allocation mm. of studio space for a yeah, new show that they were making yeah. 13 of. However, it's all practicalities. And maybe you're right. Maybe they should have had more belief in it, Ian, from the start. Yeah. They, yeah, exactly. And I've always maintained this. They don't understand Doctor Who. They don't know what to do with the IP. The IP is one of the most strongest IPs they've got. And they don't know who to hire. And they don't know who to hire as writers or or people in charge at all as i said right there's small things that bother me like the music i really hated the music was like disco music i'm like this is we're talking about time and space here as i said i keep comparing it to the movie where the movie had orchestral music and it was it was kind of more of a movie feel was more you know anything that you see that the americans produced in those days whether it be buffy or anything like that it had that kind mm. of feel but this didn't wendy i hate it when he's right no, I I'm know. not right. I'm I not, know. just my opinion. Just, no, you, no, you are, in all honesty, in that aspect, you yeah. are right. I loved this. When <laughs> I watched it first, that first yeah. night, it was so intense. The wait had been so, it had been so long. Yeah. That when the episode was first on, I mean, one of my oldest and dearest friends, he rang me literally as soon as the credits went off, and I could barely speak. <laughs> and he said, he said, oh my God, you hated it, didn't you? You hated it, Dan. And I couldn't even get a word out. I said, yeah. well, yeah. and he goes, you, you did, and he was laughing. You hate it, come on, admit it. I honestly, it was so much of an intense experience. I yeah. didn't know how I felt about it. Yes. It was yeah. so, the story had moved so fast. Yeah. And, and it had been such a hit of everything, of, mm. of character. And even now, I think there is so much in this episode. I watch it over and over and over again, and I see something different, either something mm. underneath or something on screen in the characters or something to do with the production. So mm -hmm. right after I watched it that very first time, I spoke to my friend, told him to go and do one, went for a Jimmy Riddle, went down, pressed play, <laughs> play and watched it all over again. Ah, again. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And then I think I left it about half an hour, yeah. watched Doctor Who Confidential and then I went went and rang him and then I told him what I thought about it. Yeah. It was really, really intense. I think you weren't sure whether the choices that it, it had made creatively, whether they had thrown any babies out with the bathwater. No, they the didn't. Whether the general... No, but you weren't... No, but at the time, as a, as a yeah. fan who was sort of teetering on the edge, I was aware that I wasn't the target audience for this or not the, the majority. Because if people don't watch this, they won't make any more. And I didn't want to get myself too invested in a show that was going to disappear again in three months' time. Yeah, I will always be grateful to Russell and to the mm. whole team for bringing it back and making this particular episode and it going out when it did was that prophetically, um, because I'd been away from the Doctor Who fandom for so long, it prompted me to go online, 
joined MySpace back in the day. <laughs> I then quite coincidentally met my future husband, who was a big Doctor Who fan. We oh. came together online. We got to know each other. And then we eventually got married and I came here to, to live in the UK with him. You know, it changed my life. It changed well my done. life for the better. Well done. This episode is is definitely a very special one for us, for sure. On our honeymoon, we went to London and we recreated Rose and the Doctor running across Westminster Bridge together. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and, Excellent. And it was a wonderful moment. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, if that anecdote from Wendy there doesn't melt your heart, well... Maybe you're made of plastic too. Let's take a few moments aside from the warm and the fuzzy back to the home of the geeky and the uh, the chatty. That's the Fandom Podcast Network. Of course it is. For a word about all the other great conversations going on across all the other podcasts making up our consciousness. Then you can meet Wendy, Ian and myself back here to continue our review of Rose. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We'd like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to these other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, discussing the latest in entertainment pop culture. Blood of Kings, Immortals Take Notice, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theaters, where we celebrate our favorite movies. Time Warp, the Fandom Flashback Podcast, discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, and TV pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville show. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our show covering the time-traveling Doctor Who universe with host Dan Hadley. Lethal Mullet, an 80s and 90s action film podcast with host Adam P. O'Brien. Also check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast with hosts Scott, Derek, and Nathan. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, a deep dive into the final frontier with hosts Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. And check out our newest shows, The Fandom Show, our monthly fandom podcast network live YouTube exclusive show about the month's hottest topics in fandom, and the FPN True Believers MCU podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the related Marvel television and streaming MCU universe, including the connections to the original Marvel comics. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on several platforms. Please subscribe to the Fandom Podcast Network YouTube channel to receive notifications of new podcast episodes and live events. You can enjoy all of the Fandom Podcast Network audio podcasts on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. Fandom Podcast Network is on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find the Fandom Podcast Network on Instagram at Fandom Podcast Network and on Twitter at FanPod Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. We're back. All the way back, in fact, in March 2005, reliving the greatest special comeback in TV history. Yes, Elvis fans, I said it. Nice try. But Doctor Who wins. I'm looking at now a scene, the scene of the restaurant where the Doctor is sort of staring Mickey in the face because mm. that's all that he's got to look at because he's pulled off his head. Yeah. And um, 
and there's a shot where he looks looks the uh, the detached head right in the eye, and there is a couple on the table <laughs> behind, <laughs> and there's a split second where the uh, Mickey's detached head starts talking, and yeah. it's really freaky, and Noel can't plays it brilliantly, like they have this sort of menace about it, it and you and you look at that couple. And she puts her hands up to her face, and you expect because this is Doctor Who, and it just in a split second, I waited, I cued her in to scream. He screams instead. Yeah. Yeah. That is absolutely brilliant, and it's, it's the tiniest, tiniest moment. They're both scared, so this isn't a, a yes, that was thing. This yeah. Is more, this is cleverer than that, isn't it, Wendy? It's mm. very clever. You're right, and it, and you're right. You're expecting the woman to scream, and it's the man who screams. And I think it helps to even make that scene sort of pop and be even funnier. Could have been because funnier. of the sort of surreal. Yeah, because of the surrealness. That was Keith Bowick's choice to do that rather than mm. Davis. Yeah, I think that was a good choice, definitely. Mm. Yeah. I, I was incredibly happy when Doctor Who came back. Even I was oh, disappointed yeah. with this episode. You know, I, I was like. Thank God they've brought it back, and now maybe we can get some real Who on on TV, and we did. I yeah. haven't got a camp sensibility, even though I, lo I love a Carry On film. Come to think of it, um, <laughs> I, yeah. But I, I haven't got a camp sensibility, and somewhere along the way, in between the time that Doctor Who was off screen, it's got this reputation as being this campy show. And I and I'm not saying that the original show wasn't wasn't camp. I do see that now, but it's ne it was never what I'd received from it. And I was a mm. little worried that when Doctor Who came back, that it would play to that and be campy because that's what it was had become known for. So I, yeah. I was very re relieved that there was that pathos you talked about, Wendy. That all of that was yes. there, played with played with such conviction. It was indeed, and and I think again that that's what it was. It was the pathos and it was the the depth of you know, the characters, you just felt connected to them. Um, and it felt like you were going through every emotion that Rose experienced. Certainly for me as a female, I was I was going through every one of Rose's emotions, even when she stepped into the TARDIS for the first time. And I thought her her reaction was very relatable and very believable because she just burst into tears. Yeah. It captured very well the reality of what any of us might feel in that situation. It's like too much for your brain to take in. Well, he asks mm. her, doesn't he? Well, she asks him, are you an alien? He just says, yeah. And she, is that yeah. all right? And she says, yeah, but she's still, then, even though her mouth is saying that her brain is still playing catch up. Yes, yeah. yes. So I thought that all played off very well in this the scene just before that, where they're running from um, alternate Mickey and she walks around the TARDIS. Yeah. And that mm. becomes, uh, with a with an, a couple of exceptions, that becomes the new thing, doesn't it? With yeah. with new companions, as they do that little walk around and go, wait a second, what's going on here? You know, this this can't be right. Yeah, I, I like that scene. That yeah. scene as well, Ian. Yeah, we're talking about the mm. director. Uh, mm. That scene was not written. The, the walk around. She goes into the TARDIS and then comes, comes back out, out again, yeah. and we don't yeah. see her. We don't see her first entry into the TARDIS. I've forgotten that too. Yeah. Comes back out. Then she walks all around and then bursts in the doors, throws those open. That was Keith Bowick who kind of developed that with Billy Piper. I think it helps us see through the eyes of each new companion because they each have their own unique reactions. Rose was actually so much clever and so much more capable than she was giving herself credit for. She didn't know yet, but as soon as she started being put into situations that were pressuring her, 
to to survive and to help the doctor she just came right through didn't she it, it was all there she needed to be taken out of her situation and put into something completely new for that to blossom and i think it's interesting how it, how it flips i mean i'm not saying that rose is seen as, as somebody who's in complete control the rest of the time but i think once no. she enters the, once she enters the tardis the doctor in that scene he is there obviously very relaxed this is his domain mm. he's brought her well she's pushed her way into it Mm-hmm. And he, he's explaining very, very clearly in a kind of detached way. Yes. He's aware from this point onwards that there's no real going back from this. I think he's playing with her up, up until then. He's, he's a character who's been alone for a very, very long time. And he enjoyed mm. kind of flirting with her. And, fl- and, and I don't mean sexually flirting. I mean no. flirting with her and flirting with the idea that he can have one doing this again rather than just the duty i think he views himself almost as a lighthouse keeper at this at the point where we meet him in this but he's sort of popping up after the time war which he views as his personal responsibility he was at fault for yes stopped having fun he won't let himself have fun in a way maybe what he's doing is that's why he's he's drawn to the companions because they give him a reason to want to keep going and to want to keep saving people and keep because he goes he gets quite dark in in tenants era doesn't he He starts to really lose his will to want to help people in a way because Mm. he he gets very down and the companions lift him out of that and they you know they they help him to see with new eyes if you will these these (laughs) situations literally literally literally. in, in this case in in the scene where they go to the to the tenth <laughs> bank, don't they? And, yes. Uh, actually, for all that we've said about Chris Eccleston's comic timing, he's a lot better in this scene, isn't he? Ian, with yes. The, with the big with the millennium. Yeah, that wheel. bit's funny. Yeah, that bit was funny. I, I just get the feeling that he was. Uh, I don't know when they shot that bit compared to the episode. The the, the humor worked slightly better there than it did in the beginning of the episode. Oh. That's for sure. Oh, I agree. But I think episodes like this with this kind of tone doesn't suit his doctor at all. Say so with the serious ones, mm-hmm. it does. But um, but yeah. And unfortunately, lead you down a slightly worrisome path. This was a concerted effort made by Russell T. Davis to turn the Doctor into this mythological figure, uh, and and because the universe that he existed in had been through a war in mm. the interim, and he was one of the only survivors, it would make sense that he would step up, step into heroism, or step mm. into into the role where he could be mythologized is that the right well, i don't understand how that well, how does that work other, other well, civilizations because we see this we see this in here in this episode where he comes face to face with the with the nestine the the big orange wobbly mass because you know, the, <laughs> the nestine doesn't recognize him as the doctor mm-hmm. he rec- uh, the nestine consciousness recognizes the doctor as a time lord and the nestines are now homeless, and that's the re- that's the reason why they why they're there. You know, there's not yeah, there's yeah. not a great there's not a dense plot to this, but that is the plot that after the war, uh, the nestines are homeless. They've got no uh, resources, no protein planets. They are dying. They are destitute as a result of the war started, or mm-hmm. well, you, one could argue started by the time lords. And how does that work, Dan? That's what. But, all right, so basically. When did the, the see? This is what puzzles me. When did the war start, and when did it end? And see, if if the Doctor goes back mm. in time, does that mean to say that the Time Lords are still alive because he went back in time? 
Where does the Time Lords live it's in the timeline? Yeah. The idea is that, the, that Gallifrey always exists in its own kind of little bubble. In its own kind. All right, technical. gotcha. Yeah, All yeah, right. and that's why there's fixed points. It's sort of in the centre of, of the web of time. Oh. Yeah. The, the upshot of it is that um, uh, Russell T Davies, yeah, he gives us this mythology anew for the, for the new audience that he's trying to trying to court and trying to sweep away. But I think that what he does offer us is really, really logical. It makes story sense. It makes sense in line with the characters as they were. You know, the Autons, mm. they were only in two stories originally. And they were, you know, I've always enjoyed the Autons. I, I did a delightful... Uh, Why didn't they bring back the, um, Holmes, but... the chair, the, the live chair? The, 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 the master's <laughs> chair. Well, we do well, get the Autons instead. We get, we get the floating arm instead. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. That would have been <laughs> good. That's the fun element isn't it? it that's the spirit of classic doctor who that distended arm that stops in mid-air back yeah. in in the flat when they're fighting over the coffee table mm. that effect would not have been possible during classic doctor who we always forget that that effect very rarely gets talked about now i think funny what we take for granted isn't it, it is. and we get to the the culmination of it all and, and rose is reunited with mickey the real mickey he's safe and he's he's well and the Autons are in their lair, aren't they, with uh, serving the nesting consciousness and the Doctor's got his anti-plastic. So this is under the uh, London Eye, isn't it? Yeah. You know that, that, that little porthole thing he opens to go in there? I've been yeah. looking for that everywhere. I went down to that bridge. <laughs> that, that could have been a prop. I think they filmed that on the Thames Barrier. <laughs> I wanted to go down there, but there's a, I can't find it. This, oh, is, yeah. this is kind of where Chris Eccleston comes into his own, isn't it? Because these scenes are... I won't say powerful, but he is formidable. He takes the lead. He is the hero and delivers a, I wouldn't say a speech, kind of an ultimatum in, you in see, a flippant but, way. But Dan, right, for me and, and Wendy, for me, this scene doesn't work too well. It works, but it doesn't because um, the Doctor never, ever uses violence ever, right? I mean, all right, John Pertwee chopped somebody a couple of times and stuff like that. And mm. and uh, Peter Davison shot someone, shot a Cyberman with a gun, right? But generally, the Doctor doesn't use any violence at all. And right, yeah. someone as big as Chris and uh, the thing holding him and he's going, oh, you know, oh, we should stop this, whatever, blah, blah. It doesn't work. It works with the uh, Matt Smith character because you can see him being you know, like that, yeah. or even the first Doctor and even the second Doctor. But with Chris, because of physically how he looks, it, it for me, it doesn't work. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, as I'm saying, it doesn't work for me. But, you know, that's just me, right? That's completely fair. That's a fair observation, yeah. Ian. I mean, obviously, famously from Salford in Manchester. Yes, exactly. But he, he never talks about it. He never talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the novelty. Yeah. The uniqueness of the, the you know the uniqueness of the characterization. You know, lots of planets have a north and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that, that um, they lean into that several times during this episode, just to the right amount. I was unsure about it at the time, and you know what? I'm probably still unsure about it now. At the end totally. of the day, I think it was a case of if that hadn't have been there, Christopher Eccleston would never have been the Doctor, and I can't imagine mm. this this series now without Chris Eccleston playing the Doctor. Nor me. And without this this episode. He sees the Nestine starts to writhe when it notices the anti-plastic. He's got a weapon on him in a, in a sense. He pleads that he wasn't going to use that. That was his insurance policy. But the fact that he took an insurance policy, it's the doctor all over, isn't it? That's when yeah. we start to see ever so slightly the incongruity in the character mm. from, from the outsider's perspective and start to mm. ask the questions about what's, what's been going on in the Doctor Who universe in the time that we've been away. But yeah. I, I, I remember noticing that at the time, and obviously it was uh, only a week 
henceforth where we'd get the we'd get more answers about it. But at the time, it was just the tiniest droplet of information, and, and even the mentions of the Shadow Proclamation, which don't get mentioned again for years. Yes, <laughs> that's until, right. Until um, Tennant comes in, he mentions in it. The, in the Jadoom, yes. It's quite late, quite late in the day yeah, now, era. It it's all seeded, and even though that I don't at the point that they shot this, certainly, certainly when it was written. Russell couldn't have known how things were going to go for the show in the short term or the long term. Mm. But I think just like just like writers like Joe Michael Straczynski with Babylon 5, he believed mm -hmm. in that which he was putting on the page and in actors' mouths. It all feels built for purpose. The passion was there yeah. uh, and, it, and it all sort of was in the right places, even though uh, production-wise, as Ian pointed out, it had plenty of issues. It at the end of the day, what ended up on screen to the majority of the viewing public was something that if it hadn't been right, we wouldn't be here talking about it today, potentially, because if that hadn't caught on, it might not have, you know, been given a second chance to come back a following season. And the fans mm. were the only ones that knew that that there was life. It doesn't matter how long Doctor That's Who's true. off the screen. We were buying the merchandise. We were still yeah. reading the books. Yeah. So how could you, how could the BBC not not have seen this? Because the rights were with BBC Films yep. for several years, to, and they were with they were with BBC Films for so long yep. that the people who were ma were making efforts to bring it back to TV had been asking for so long just to get the same answer. It's with BBC Films that eventually they stopped asking. And the rights lapsed, the film rights, they, they lapsed and it went back to the BBC. It was the fans that reminded the BBC that that had happened, that they, they could make a TV show again, that that option was up. The one that wrote to Jane Tranter, they publicised that. They put the letter on Gallifrey Base, I think it was called Outpost Gallifrey at the time. No, so it was up to the fan base. We were publicising, we were fighting, we had one eye on the possibilities, well, I have both eyes on the possibilities, when the BBC, they'd gone on to other things. Yeah, they tried things like Randall and Hopkirk. They, they yep. tried all sorts. They tried American imports. They tried spooks. They, bugs. Uh, bugs. They tried all bugs. sorts of things. Yeah. And it, but at the end of the day, and, and as much as I enjoyed a lot of those shows, they weren't Doctor Who. Looking at the end of the episode, I want to talk a little bit about Billy Piper and Rose Tyler before, before we leave it. She's put in a situation towards the end where, you know, the action, it's all, it's all wrapped up and the Autons are lifeless plastic again. Once she has, you know, she's scooped up Mickey and sort of pulled him away from, from, uh, from the fire. That's a great explosion that we get at the end of the episode, I thought. Yeah. Mm. Great model work that was. And so they're, they're back together. She's got Mickey back. He's very much in her care. She goes to check on, on her mother, on Jackie. <laughs> uh, just gives her a ring. Jackie's in the shopping precinct, you know, walking around all, all the all the autons and all the wreckage and things like that. It's a lovely moment. Have you noticed that Rose doesn't actually say anything to Jackie? No, Jackie just launches into her. Get out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then and then Jackie rings her after everything's done. She goes, you know, oh, this don't go outside the house, don't go outside the house, and she starts <laughs> laughing. Then she she quits the call on her mum. <laughs> no, that's not I good, think, is it? I think it's once that she knows that her mum's she's all right. All right yeah, she yeah. knows her mum's okay. She knows she can pick up that conversation in a couple of hours' time. Yeah, uh, whether that couple of hours' time ends up being much longer or or not. <laughs> Whereas the situation with Mickey is, you know, she knows that her mother may be a bit of a nightmare, but she'll always be okay. Yeah. and a lot of the things that her mother asks of her, she's more than capable of doing for herself. 
and, and so her mum will, will will be all right yeah. whereas mickey may not be all right and so she can't for example just go gallivanting off in the blue box with a complete stranger she feels the weight of that responsibility i think doesn't she wendy Yes, yes, definitely. And you can see it play out in those scenes. And there, there is a, a definite, you can see the affection in Rose's face and her facial expression when she's talking, you know, Jackie's on the phone and then she just sort of quits the call. You, as you say, you can see it's, it's like, oh, okay, she's all right. And she's, mm. she's dealing with the situation at hand, which is Mickey clinging to her, being terrified and having just gone through an incredibly life-changing experience. Yeah. She's already got the measure of the doctor in a way so she's a bit of an old hat at this already and poor mickey is sort of has been dragged into it sort of against his against his will that scene is i think is equally important as the first scene because now we're we're seeing what rose is going to do what's she going to do next is she, is she gonna what decision is she going to make she's instantly hit ian by the fact the world around her is bigger than she'd than she'd recognized before in her job from the flat to her job to the chip shop in a and mickey's place in that in a square like that he says why don't you come with me and she mm -hmm. goes now i've got to look after mickey and they have and they spend a second or two looking at each other and you can see the disappointment on eccleston's face and you yeah. can see that um billy is registering his disappointment Mm -hmm. And then when he shuts the door, because he shuts it very slowly, shut, he, 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 he got, backs off slowly and he shuts the door and, and he disappears. And then she kind of like sighs and then she has to deal with Mickey. But when he comes back and <laughs> says, <laughs> you know, if we travel in time and space, she probably says, what the hell? <laughs> what the think, hell? I've yeah, got to do I this. I think it's you know? that moment yeah. where she realizes that and she'd made a mistake. Jackie will goes, be yeah. OK. It's just Mickey. Just Mickey. They used to go to school together, right? We hear a little bit about a school life in this, but I've it's, this is also the first time I've watched this episode, Wendy, since I read yeah. the book. I read Russell T. Mm. Davis' book, and that is he introduces so many other things in that, as, as a lot of the Target books traditionally did. Mickey is given a completely different in in this. He is a, a great big lummox that gets into tight <laughs> spots. All about his uh, web, his web history. But a good bloke. But a good yeah, bloke. A, you know, a, yeah, a good, a good yeah. guy. Yeah, just a good guy. He's doing his best. He, yeah he loves her you know but if if there's a match on you know we'll go and watch that whatever mm -hmm. and she knows that he'll be okay too but it's and the doc it's the look on the doctor's face because he knows that as soon as he tells her it's a time machine he even stands away from the door doesn't he he knows yeah, that he leaves that's, that's yeah. that well that's what the flirting i was talking about earlier on that's what the that has been leading to that moment yes. where the door's wide open he does he knows what her answer's going to be it's this the information that's exchanged between the two of them is brilliant. It's just really mm. well done. One of many great moments. And, and um, absolutely. Uh, and she runs in slow yeah, motion towards the Perfectly played. Yeah, I always thought that was, <laughs> that was curious. I thought that was curious as well. I still don't think that quite works, but. Yeah, it's all right, though. Kind of works, yeah, I guess. It, it, I thought entire, that worked. The entire mm. episode has become almost warts and all. All of it has become iconic. And I wouldn't change Ge genuinely i wouldn't change a single scene of this yeah it's part of history i mean quite frankly i i wouldn't i mean I, you know if i was in charge of doctor who and and i was in charge of merchandise i would tell them to go back and correct some of the effects in there and stuff like that i would because it's worth it because you know that if you have a version where you correct certain things that the fans are just gonna especially the old fans they're just gonna go crazy and buy it do you know what i mean and that's oh, the gosh. power of, of doctor yeah. who i had my uh, rather cathartic evening where i watched that episode twice 
back to back, <laughs> along, along with uh, along with Doctor Who Confidential. I think there was many people who probably watched it three or four times in that one night. Uh, fortunately, the British public did watch it. I've got the I've got the figures, unofficial overnight viewing figures, according to Barb. That's the uh, Broadcasters Audience Research Board. As people on, on Twitter don't seem to realise that it, is act- it does actually exist. It is an official place. It's not just that <laughs> somewhere that we've invented to try and prove you wrong that stats actually matter. This so the the overnight view figures from Bob showed the episode attracted an average of nine point nine million viewers. Of the course of the evening, forty three point two percent of the available television audience—that's people who were watching TV in the UK. 43.2% of them were watching Doctor Who. It actually peaked at 10.5 mm-hmm. million viewers. Mm. Back then, a consolidated figure just included VHS recordings. So that went, <laughs> that went, up, that went up to 10.8 million there. That was big. It is, it was. But the most important thing here, I was happy to see the Time Lord back back in its rightful place at the right time, which was seven, was it seven o'clock down? I can't remember now, it was seven, wasn't it? Yeah, on Saturday. And you know what, no matter no, no matter how disappointed I was with the first episode, I was tuning in in the next episode, you know what I mean? So it got me, yeah. it hooked me. Well, that, that wonderful scene where the camera pans down the street as Rose is running from, from where the doctor's just told her to run, you know, and she, mm. we the, the camera pans and we see the TARDIS tucked away on what was actually a Cardiff street, which was supposed to be a London street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a physical intake of breath. Just that wonderful sort of... <gasps> just seeing the TARDIS back on BBC again just made me smile. It's like an old friend. It's like seeing yep. an old friend again. You know, it doesn't matter yep. how many times you've had your picture taken with it or yep. you might have 50 different TARDISes all over your home. When you see that big full-size TARDIS, it's, it just comes all back to you again. So in light of the fact that we've watched after all this time and as uh, critical as you can be, as pragmatic about it as you can be, watching it this time, did you enjoy it more, less or about the same as you expected to? I enjoyed watching it again. I'm not sighing a lot now because I know that this is part of history (laughs) and that's what they dealt with and this is the episode. But as I said, I always remember the first time I saw it being so disappointed I mean, I saw my, me and my brother always watch Doctor Who together. Me and my brother Richard, we all sit and watch Doctor Who together. I remember watching this being disappointed, but recently when I watched this, Dan, you know, I, I, I enjoyed, enjoyed it for what it is. And, and I enjoyed you, watching Wendy? it. Had it been a while for you too? I mean, I know that this has got a different emotional resonance for you, but yeah. as, as an episode of TV, how did you find it this time? It had been a while. Um, and I have to be honest, in the last few years with everything that's gone on and a lot of the disappointments we, as many of us have, have faced, I couldn't bring myself to watch. I could watch classic Who, but I hadn't stepped back into, I'll call it new Who, in quite a while. Um, and I was a bit afraid because I knew it would just be extremely overwhelming, because very emotionally overwhelming. Because of the connective tissue as well. Yes. Yeah. So seeing it again was wonderful. I mean, and it mm. did give me the desire now to go back and watch more again of, of New Who, to go back through it, because there's so much there that I love. There is. So many different episodes and stories and Doctors. It was fantastic to see it again. I was in bits. I watched it again, and I was just in bits. I just thought, this is Doctor Who. Oh, my God. It's too much of a reminder of what, what Doctor what, Who is yeah. supposed to be. <laughs> what was clever yeah. is they put clips of the second episode 
in the first episode. Mm. And I remember that was one of the reasons why I wanted to carry on watching I, Doctor I Who. Hated I saw that that. As well. Oh, did you? I, I, I said that, that the clip. I was like, I want to see that. Now you, now you love it now. <laughs> it was a, a masterstroke, an absolute masterstroke yeah. that was. I was really grumpy about that at the time. All right. I think yeah. doing things like that and having the pre-credits sequences too made up for the, the fact that we weren't getting cliffhangers. And I, yeah. I, I was aware of that quite quickly, but it was so mm. new that it contributed mm. to that. Wow, this isn't the show that I remember. But I, I, liked, I liked it because they went outside the studio. They went to locations. They shot outside. If you watched, you know, Classic Who, it's mostly BBC sets. And, you know, it's like, you know, they've just walked over there to be in another set. So, <laughs> you know, it's very much a play when you watch the Classic Who. But with yeah. this, it was, a re it was they were attempting to do a real TV show. So that's what I liked about it. As I said, thank God for Russell T for bringing it back. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, big fella, yes. for everything that you did back Thank in you, 2003, Russell. 2004. Yeah. <laughs> and, for, and for the gift of, of Rose, this episode of TV, which has, I think, aged generally damn well. I, I do. I, I, I give this four shots of anti-plastic out of five. How about you, Wendy? I'm going to have to go five shots of anti-plastic because this was a very <laughs> special one for us. I like it. I like it. How about you, Ian? Because it's Doctor I'll probably give it three three is good enough you know as as i said there's loads of support but you know what my disappointments are because of the time you know the music wasn't good because of the technology that they had in those days you know the way they shot it they didn't treat it properly but you know there you go but i'll give it three completely wonderful piece of tv and the only drawback only drawback well it's is it a drawback because it doesn't hurt so much now is the fact that uh, at the time there was a massive relief from the fandom that this show had come back and that people had liked it. You know, the viewing oh, figures yes. were made public within 24, 36 hours. But sadly, <laughs> and you know, those <laughs> viewing figures were amazing and everybody was, was clapping and cheering. And just a few hours later, we got this bit of news. The Doctor Who quits. Uh, yeah. I know, it was Astor. such a... <laughs> well, that's terrible, isn't it? was uh, announced that he was departing the series. Uh, this was, I think it was the following Monday, it was in the newspapers, and in the, the Sun, the Times, they both ran with it. Doctor Who quits, he saves the world, and the BBC, then Doctor Who quits. We were inconsolable. We'd had a ah. Doctor that had lasted only one night back in 96, and here was, okay, he was going to be around for another three months, but this was... The party lasted precisely one night. <laughs> yeah, the timing of that story was pretty evil. It really was because uh, it was it was such a delicate time. You think, God, can't this show ever catch a break? That's yeah. how yeah. a lot of us felt about it. It didn't really bother me. But then when I was watching the whole season and it came to the end, I felt that he needed another season. He did. And I was sad. I was sad that he was leaving. We got a, a press release, which... Uh, Christopher Eccleston's reasons at the time. Mm. The BBC's uh, statement about how they were going to go forward was also issued really quick as well so that they could sustain their hit show. Mm. And it may have even added the fact that we knew that he was only going to be around, he was going to be around for yeah, three months, that that may have added to some of the specialness of what went on in that spring and summer of, of 2005 on British television because it was very, very special. It did mm. feel like the whole nation got swept up in this show. Rose itself is still available to uh, to stream. I believe it's on up on the iPlayer, or at least it was. And Sky. You can also pick it up. It's on Sky, is it, Ian? 
on the Sky remote, you've got the thing where you can actually talk to your to your Sky thing, and it will find something for you. So if you go Doctor Who season one, it'll just find the whole of Chris Eccleston's yeah. season for you. You can also for the dinosaurs like me, you can pick it up on physical media. It's still available <laughs> on DVD, and it's <laughs> been upscaled. They've upscaled it, Wendy, for Blu-ray. You said there's a, a steel. Oh game, right, have, have they? Ooh, I did they, not know that. They have. So. It's quite hard to get hold of now because I think it was released a few years ago. Oh there's no. Options out there. The uh, Rose by Russell T. Davies, the Target book, that's out, that's available on Amazon. And if you're, again, if you're a bit of a lazy reader like me, the audiobook read by Camille Kaduri, that's out too. So take your pick whether you want to read it or have it be read to one. The choice is yours. Thanks for joining me for this review. I was going to say, yeah, I'm calling it a review. It's more of a chat, really, because the way I yeah. view these, the way I view these converse- conversations potentially is with episodes of Doctor Who like this, uh, particularly the ones that are are this pivotal, but episodes yeah. that we've lived with us now for a decade and a half, Ian. Mm. You know, this is not the first word on Rose by Russell T Davies. It's it's not like we're laying any claim that this is the definitive uh, final word on this episode of TV. It's not mm-hmm. even my final word, and I I could change my mind about Absolutely. this episode the more times I, I watch it. But all we're offering with this strand. It's just yeah. the lightest word. I want it to be sort of casual and quite relaxed, <laughs> and I think that's mission accomplished. Wendy, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. I do hope you've enjoyed it. We'd love to have you back, either for, for further episodes of this or other things that we've got coming up. Oh, and, lovely. Uh, Ian, Cheers. as always, thanks for your company. Thanks for your insight for the brickbats and the bouquets. I know, Russell, <laughs> you, you won't take it personally. You won't take it personally. Of course not. And yeah, that's the old girl starting up and calling time on this trip in our TARDIS. I'll be back soon with another Type 40. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been on the dedicated home feed for Type 40 at type40.podbean.com or over on the podcatcher of your choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podbay, all those places. We're absolutely everywhere. We're also on YouTube, the world's largest streaming platform on the Spacebook YouTube channel. Plus, we're still on the fabulous Fandom Podcast Network's master feed loaded with all those treats for your ears on the daily. Maybe you'd like to have your say about Rose or whatever else we talk about on the show. All those little time eddies we have a habit of of dropping in in and out of. Reach out to all of us at Type 40 through our social medias, Instagram and Twitter at Type 40 Doctor Who or email us type 40 doctor who at gmail.com and if you're feeling really brave and fancy some real-time extra-dimensional chit-chat step into the type 40 facebook group still full of regeneration upon regenerations worth of fans of classic doctor who of new doctor who and everybody who's looking forward or not to all new doctor who coming from russell t davis from 2023 you can connect with wendy over on twitter at Wendology1. And Ian too, he's on Twitter as at Ian David Diaz. And you can find me, I'm scattered of course, throughout all of space and time, but mostly on Twitter and Instagram as the Spacebook, where I'm wheezing and groaning, posting, sharing about all things geeky inside and outside of the TARDIS. Thanks again, Wendy and Ian. And thanks to you for listening. We always have the time if you have the space here at Type 40. Take care, speak soon. Bye bye.
Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, is a Spacebook production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.